out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of the American singer, guitarist. It's the one and only Talia Sadek, who I spoke to very recently to find out more about life, love and poetry. Um, was in various bands as well as uh, a prolific solo career, but was in um, people like Live Skull, Codeine, Cum, and various other bits and pieces. But anyway, you're going to find out more about that in this interview. And as I said, she's also done a lot of solo work. So this is the interview. After several minutes of interesting but casual chat that we edit out, we get down to that exciting subject that was the early formative years. Talia, it's over to you. Yeah, definitely. I think I think for me it was. Probably Patty Smith, hearing Patty Smith on the record radio for the for the first time, probably in maybe even like in 76 or 77. Um I think it was Gloria. Yeah. Right. Gloria, yeah. And yes. um, and then discovering forces and um kind of kind of simultaneously with that, I was, you know, discovered the Ramones and some other sort of, you know, original original punk bands the clash and uh generation x but i think yeah patty smith was probably a really big big one for me a big moment yeah it was funny because at the weekend i did an interview with a performance artist and um, person called penny arcade and she spoke a lot about her time in new york and being with patty smith a bit so um yeah it was quite a nice little connection were your were your parents at all did they have any kind of musical as an interest or cultural interest that you know that possibly shaped you or sort of gave you some sort of inspiration or something to rebel against it's a fine line <laughs> um not really i mean my, i have to say neither of my parents really played an instrument or or sang or did any kind of organized stuff but they were um definitely really really big aficionados they really they really loved music and music was very was very important to them I've I've come to realize sort of like as I've you know grown older and gotten to know them I, probably when I was you know a teenager I didn't really realize it but um you know now that now that knowing them as an adult I was like wow you know I think it's it's a was was really really one of their a, a huge part of their life but um but not it was I wouldn't say we were my immediate family was a particularly like musical oriented family though, not against it. You know, we had a, we had a piano that I don't even know why we got it. I think at some point there was an idea that me and my brother and or my brother would like learn to play. And it just kind of like stayed, stayed <laughs> in the basement, <laughs> but um, yeah, no one, no one was really yes no one no one sort of bashed away because that's often one the other thing is an older brother or sister who had a sort of musical kind of taste I I mean I was the youngest of three I must admit my my middle brother didn't really he wasn't that into music but my older brother who was seven years older he was he was kind of a big you know influence on my life so he had that world of glam rock no not glam rock prog rock God. he loved prog rock in the 70s so that was his thing and um i remember you know being kind of fascinated with these records that he had that he forbid me to play so obviously i sneaked into his room and would play them and and became quite obsessed with the work of you know yes and genesis and all those people which you know i kind of i enjoyed at the time that discovery but now i look back and think god if only he'd 
had better music taste, it would have been so much more fun. But um, <laughs> it was all right. You know, prog was definitely not some um, punk. It was some definitely something he didn't ever sort of like. So um, that never came into our into our lives. So then, as the the sort of seventies progress, obviously you mentioned Paddy Smith and the Ramones. So punk, I guess you were the right age for punk. I was a bit too young for that first wave, really. Yeah, I was probably like, um, I don't know, I, I'm guessing like 15 or something like that when when the first wave kind of happened. And um, was I 15 yet? Yeah, that sounds that's not 15, maybe 16, somewhere around there. Um, and and a friend of mine uh, had a friend, Azalea Snail. I don't know if you've heard of of, of her. She's um musician. She's gone on to do a, a lot of a lot of different things. And she was a year ahead of me. I think it was one year ahead of me in high school. And she, I kind of saw her wearing a Patti Smith t-shirt in high school one day. And um, she would always dress all in black. And um, and I'd never, didn't know anyone else that really knew about Patti Smith. And I became friends with her. And um, she was one of those kids that like, you know, was she got all the magazines and she had all these imported singles and she just turned me on to so much stuff like x-ray specs. And I remember listening to like the singles in, in her bedroom, you know, after school, um, the day the world turned day glow and stuff like that. So, yeah, so I got, she, I was lucky that I had a sort of a guide who, who really turned me on to a lot of stuff because my, my brother, older brother, like yours was really into prog rock, which I was definitely not into at all so um yes no, what was I, I your to his records but i was forced to listen to his records because we we only had one turntable in our house and my brother was usually monopolizing it but um so uh yeah but so yes. through 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 my friend in high school i i became familiar with um with with a lot of the punk bands and um also i grew up uh I grew up in DC and also just outside DC, kind of like my earlier years were in, in the center of the city. And then my adolescent years were, were just outside in a very close suburb. And, um, and DC had actually quite a big punk scene, which I discovered. And um, at the time you only had to be 18 to get into clubs and it's pretty easy as a 16 year old to, you know, get away with it. So it was like, um, so I, I actually started going going into town, into DC, and going to punk rock clubs when I was like 16 years old, and um, seeing yeah. all sorts of bands like the Ramones and um, the Cramps used to play in DC a lot, and I saw Patti Smith a bunch of times. So yeah, we would get a fair amount of the New York bands, and um, also like back in in '79, it, it's kind of making a comeback now. But um, I got the original like No New York, the sort of like that had already kind of started around 79, the uh, noise stuff. And um, yes, so it was interesting. Yeah. Yes. Cause I, I, it's going to be interesting. The punk scene in, in America, New York compared to the UK is quite different really. Cause there was, um, was it Z records that had that kind of no wave sound with people like, was it liquid liquid? And um, I don't know about that. Like when I, I was in DC in that era, Stiff Records was really huge in England. Right. Yes. If you, if you remember them, they had uh, Lena Lovich and just a ton of rock bands. And um, so DC had our, we had Limp Records 
which was kind of like you know stiff and limp and um that was that put out all the punk the punk rock bands like um oh god there was the nurses and the Raz and the deceits and um the slicky boys and um the urban verbs i mean with that I mean, it was kind of like a little bit maybe more new wave-ish, but um, uh, there's a band called The Shirkers, and um, and yeah, they were all on Lymph Records, which was based on this on this uh, this record store called Yesterday and Today that was in Rockville, Maryland, and um, yeah. Yes, God, I need to check that out, don't I? That's that sounds like a, a sort of lymph records. Yes, that does sound good. So when you got to sort of like 78, 79, you hadn't been in a band by then, but obviously you were getting quite excited. What what was the sort of the the moment that you felt like you wanted to join and get on stage rather than the, just being a happy punter like I've always been? <laughs> well, you know, I actually I was in a band in high school when like when probably when I was about like 16 or 17, um I started answering ads for like sort of punk bands. And I got in this band with um, the lead singer was this guy, Steve, who um, had been in, in that band, the Shirkers who had put out a single on limp records. And there's this guy, Tommy, Tommy Kane, whose brother was in the slicky boys. And um, this other guitar player, songwriter, Zimmer Voss, who I, I have no idea what became of them, but anyway, we, we, um, we had a band called Fingers of Shame and we never played out. <laughs> but we did record actually. Um, and we must have been one of the first people to record with Don Zantera, who later went on to record Minor Thread and Fugazi and all of the DC bands. But I remember recording with Don in his basement. And I was in high, still in high school then. So that was pretty early on. But we never we didn't so I was kind of I was definitely trying to get in a band then, but I didn't I didn't succeed until I moved to Boston in, in uh, late 79. Yes. When did you discover your voice? When did you think, yes, I can sing? <laughs> um, you know, I was in the first band after Fingers of Shame um, that I was in was in a band called White Women. And I actually started out as the drummer. And then, um, and then, and then I, I like playing drums, but I really wanted to play guitar. So I kind of convinced them to let me play guitar. And then, then for a little while we went without a drummer and then the lead singer who also played keyboards decided that she would be the drummer. And, um, but she wanted someone else to be the lead singer. And at that point we were, had gone down from like a four piece to a three piece and the bass player, Judy was, tone deaf so it kind of fell on me to be the lead singer so that's kind of tricky isn't that's it? How I, ended, I kind of ended up singing by default and I, I I never really I never thought I had a good voice and so I wasn't I always kind of was you know I wanted to sing but I was a guy I don't have a good enough voice to be the singer and so I was you know content with being like the guitar player but I was already like writing songs at, at that point and so um yeah, so it, it just kind of fell into it with yes. uh, that. And then after White Women, you formed, is it Dangerous Birds, which kind of then put out, you put out one single, didn't you, which was on Propeller Product Records. So um, so that was, was that quite a major step, you know, sort of going into much more of a, a tighter sort of unit than the um, White Women? Yeah, possibly. I mean, I so I, I 
I, I left white women. They continued on without me for a while. And actually I never did any recordings with them, but they've released a couple of recordings after I left. And then um, I, but you know, we white women used to play out a lot. So I had met a lot of musicians by then in Boston and, um, and put out the word that I was looking to form a, a group and, um, and was lucky enough to, to be able to find like three other like-minded women and um and did dangerous birds yeah yes single and an ep we did a song on a compilation ep and another song on we were on propeller yeah on propeller records as she mentioned so we did a, a single on propeller and then we were on a couple of the compilations too yes because it's kind of in the uk it was kind of an interesting period we had that punk scene and that sort of you know like most scenes you probably sort of realize they have about 18 good months and then it all gets a bit you know poor and then you got the post-punk scene with quite a lot of you know more interesting bands but then sort of 82 83 there was a which started to happen which was the kind of more indie scene at that stage in in the UK I mean we always had the, the mainstream charts but there was also you know like you had that we had in the sense with that I suppose Trevor Horn production sort of vibe. And we had like bands like the Smiths and the June Brights, and then there was the Wolf Wolfhounds and bands like that. Did those kind of bands kind of come over to the the USA at all? Um I don't remember hearing about the Smiths until probably like later in the 80s um well actually mid-80s the first british bands that i really became aware of um was the maps the fall um joy division of course um not the maps well maps i mean there was a boston band called the maps around the same time but yeah the swell yeah. maps the fall um echo and the bunnymen psychedelic furs like the that really early stuff Susie and the banshees um and yeah, the the Smiths I wasn't aware of until later. And what were some of the other bands that you? Mentioned? Oh yeah, there was like I mean they were very kind of I suppose kind of indie. They were like there was yeah yeah no. There was the Wolfhounds. Then in from Australia you had the Triffids and the Go Betweens. New Zealand we had bands like the. Yeah, the I knew Kills. about the Go Betweens, but to me that was like I didn't know about them until like the late eighties, early nineties. Like I'm definitely a, a huge Go Betweens fan and. Um, uh i was a really big birthday party fan um right into them quite early Um, and what about early nick cave you know when he sort of started a you know with a slightly different combo after the birthday party did you sort of follow his career at all oh yeah oh yeah yeah i mean i was a huge birthday party fan i discovered them probably in like 83 when they put out prayers on fire and then junkyard and then and then you know all the, the EPs. I was they were like my favorite band. I was like devastated when they broke up. Dangerous Birds actually opened for the birthday party in Boston. Um, it had to be like eighty three, something like that. Um, so I was definitely already like a big Nick Cave fan. And when I you know I definitely followed followed him from the birthday party through his whole solo career. Yes. And then, God, you, you, you know, this decade, you're whizzing through lineups like crazy here, aren't you? Your next band is, is it Uzi that you sort of 
become part of. So did that, I mean, most people I interview, they have quite a, I don't know, they have a very intense period with one band and then they think that's it with music. But obviously you're, you're sort of being able to sort of juggle or or at least, you know, keep this kind of um, excitement going. So what was it like with this next combo that you put together or were part of? Um, well, with Uzi, like, like I, I was really influenced by this Boston band Mission of Burma, um, who, and they had a, a person, like a sort of a fourth member of the band who ran tape loops from behind the soundboard and did all sorts of really interesting stuff. And I became really interested in, in, in that kind of that kind of thing, like tape loops and sort of manipulating other sounds that weren't just sort of standard, uh, like band instruments, you know, like guitar, bass, drums. Um, Actually, one of the women in Dangerous Birds, Lori Green, her boyfriend at the time was Martin Swope, who was the guy that was the sound man tape loop guy for Mission of Burma. Um, When Mission of Burma kind of came out of hiatus again, recently and uh who took that um that role on um what's his name uh i'm gonna forget it'll it'll come to me he um steve albini and um he's more known now as a producer but he's in um he's in uh shellac with steve um okay I'm just spacing out on his name, but um. Anyway, he he, come to us. he kind of took that role over later, but um. So with Uzi, I wanted to do something different. I felt like with Dangerous Birds and White Women, I was kind of coming from a garage rock type place. Um, more I was doing like into punk and garage rock, but kind of like sort of, you know, more like sort of the rock and roll style. And then, but then when I heard the birthday party and bands like that that were really not really borrowing much from you know garage or 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 blues necessarily um i i wanted to start uzi and we had um i met this guy phil milstein who um did stuff with a four with a a four track cassette player and he would sort of play this cassette player they would make all sorts of like bound tracks and um yeah it was just a little bit a little bit more of a of a interesting band to me at the time, what I was interested in, I was interested in sort of like exploring a different type of music than sort of standard, more standard rock and roll. And um, yeah, we ended up uh, being putting out our first and only record on Homestead, which was uh, Gerard Cosloy's label before um, he started Matador. And uh, and through that, I met the people in Live Skull because Live Skull was on Homestead. And at that point, like Homestead had Sonic Youth and Scratch Acid and Live Skull and God, who else? Um, there was Big Dipper as well, wasn't there? On that Big Dipper, Big Black. I mean, just tons of bands. Oh, Naked Ray Gun as well. Yeah, that was a kind of label. Yes, it's it was quite the thing. So you put out Sleep Asylum. Was that your? Yep. That was our that was our our only record, and I think we had already broken up by the time it was released. <laughs> what was the what was the kind of the story behind the band? Did you play? Did you manage to sort of get out much and play live? 
We did. We played a lot around Boston, but we didn't play out of town. Like Dangerous Birds actually played a lot more out of town shows than than Uzi did. Uzi, I don't think we even ever made it to New York. Um, we just we we played a lot in Boston and maybe I'm trying to remember now. I, I don't I don't remember doing a lot of out of town shows. I think like Boston had a really great scene then and. Um, like throwing muses were just starting. Like I remember playing with them, and there's a lot of inter- a lot going on here. So I think I was pretty happy to to stay around to play in Boston. Yeah. Yes, because Live Skull, you joined. That was around '87, wasn't it? Your your sort of right, moment so with I, them. They had been going since '82. So what was it like, sort of becoming part of a band who was sort of quite established? Yeah, that was interesting. I mean, I had been a huge fan of theirs was a huge live skull fan and would go see all of their shows and I was like really really big fan of theirs and I'd even thought in my head if I could join any band I'd love to join this band I mean I was a really big fan they didn't know that but um because I, I didn't really talk to them and then um some some point like I don't know in the year after Uzi broke up I my friends the wild stairs were opening up for for live skull in in Rhode Island and um and I tagged along with them and, you know, they were all sharing a dressing room. And um, so at some point in the night, I started talking to the live skull people and, you know, and they asked me my name and I have a somewhat unusual name. So I said, Talia, and they're like, Talia Zedek by any chance? And it turns out that they had been real big fans of the Uzi record, which they had, they were on the same label as Uzi. So they had heard it and, um, they had really, really loved it. And um, they always thought that they didn't you know, recognize my name as being like a female name. And so I have kind of a low voice. So they had always thought, and on the picture of Uzi, you can't really see my face that well. So they always thought that I was this like small dude, you know? And so they were just like, wait, are you the, you're the singer in Uzi? And I was like, yeah, I was a like, singer and one of the guitar players. So anyway, we met there like, oh, we, you know, we love your record, blah, blah, blah. And, um, and then I heard from them a short while later, and it turned out that they were just about to go through sort of a transition with the band, and um, they had decided that they wanted to get a lead singer. Um, they, at that point, Mark and Marnie and Tom were all sharing the vocals, and none of them really wanted to be the singer, and um, and they just decided that they wanted a lead singer. And also, I think by then, James Lowe had kind of announced that he was going to be leaving, like, after the next record, like, um, so they were kind of, like, looking to change things up a little bit, and, you know, they they asked me if I wanted to um, to try out for the role, so I, so I did, and they were about to record a new record, and that was Dusted, and yes. I, I ended up recording that record with them. I was while still living in Boston. I hadn't really officially joined the band yet. And um and that was the record. I think James Lowe played drums on half the record and, and Rich Hutchins played on the other half. Rich who's still playing with them now. And uh yeah, and then after after that, I at some point I moved to New York and just kind of joined the band full time. Yes, because this was recorded, this was recorded in, in New York. Was this because I did an interview with uh, Martin bc um was it because he mixed it was what did you record it at bc studios or yeah. did you yeah. right what was your was that the kind of first time you'd been in this studio that um martin had put together 
Yeah, yep. That was a, that was a, my first time there. Um, Live Scholar already recorded a, a, you know, the first two records. I think they did like three. Rec- they put, had already put out when I joined them. They had done um, Bringing Home the Bait, which was their first LP. They'd done Cloud One, which was their second LP, and they'd done the Pusher Man EP. So I came in after the Pusher Man EP, and um, I think they might have had a a live record then too. But yeah. so they they had been in Martin's studio. They had been recording with Martin for quite a while then, so they were comfortable with him. But but Dust, it was my first time recording with Martin and recording in BC Studios. Yes, and did you? Were you part of the the creative process of the the kind of songs that came together, or had they already been kind of written? No, I'm very much part of the process. Yeah. Right. How, what was what was the sort of the creative kind of journey for that album? Did you sort of just you know rehearse a lot, have it all written, and then go into the studio, or did it? You know, I just wondered if the music came first. Um. Well, you know, it was kind of weird for me because it was the first time that I'd been in a band as just the singer without playing guitar so I was I was used to writing songs like on the guitar and you know I also sang and wrote lyrics but I had more input into the actual you know melodic structure and you know harmonic structure so this is my first time just where like we would jam basically but I wasn't playing anything so I would just I would just sing and had a notebook and kind of like scrawl into the notebook and they would play their guitars. So it was kind of like, yeah, just, it was um all sort of written together. So I wrote all the vocals and lyrics for the, those songs. And, um, and those rest of the guys, you know, wrote the, the music. Yes. Cause it's, it's quite an intense period you had with live skull. Cause kind of basically the following year, you bring out another album, which is, you know, quite fast and furious at this stage. Yeah, they were they were definitely, you know, really hardworking and um really like really kind of like um matter of fact about it. they were just like, all right, we're gonna make another record right now. Now we're gonna make another record. We're gonna we're gonna rehearse and for you know four weeks and then we're gonna go into the studio. So it was kind of like it was a as opposed to like I was you know, it probably had something to do with with the cities we were living in because I was used to living in Boston and, you know, there's old houses and, you know, all the bands, we lived in houses and we had basements and it was just a little bit more lackadaisical. And um, in New York, everyone lived in tiny apartments and you had to rent rehearsal space by the hour. So you were forced to, to, to be um, a lot more... Uh, efficient with your time so I was used to, yeah you get a band together and then you rehearse for a year or two and then maybe you know and you play out and then you write stuff and then maybe you go into the studio and record a record but but with Live Skull it was kind of like you know they were like no this is we're gonna make this record then we're gonna go on tour and you know and um and it was, it was great for me because it was what I wanted because up until that point when I joined them I was probably like Oh gosh, I was probably like 25 or by that time, 26. And, you know, I'd been playing in a lot of different bands, but had still had never toured and kind of like every band I was in seemed to break up, you know, before the record actually came out. So I was um, excited to be in an actual functional band that was going on the road and going, you know, touring and stuff like that. Yes. When you came to recording, it was, it turned out to be the band's 
last album, did you have a sense that it was going that way that you, you know, after that album, you know, it was going to finish or was it, was there no sense of that at all? With live skull? Yes. Um, no, I didn't, I didn't know that it was going to finish. No, I don't think we had any sense of it at that time. Um, it was kind of like during the subsequent touring around that record, like, like you said before, we were really putting stuff out and working really, really hard. So it was a bit of a, you know, it was like a whirlwind of like three years, three records, constant tours. And, um, I think by the time we had a, we did a lot of touring on that last record. And I think, I think like kind of, I think we went to Europe first and then we went to the States. I think by the time we were touring the States, things were starting to unravel a little bit. So I think at, at that point, maybe I had a sense that, you know, this, this might be the end, but, um, but yeah, you know, there was, there was a lot of different factors. I would imagine. Did you, because I know John Peel, I mean, we were kind of in this country had a slight, we were slightly lucky for that scene because we had this kind of DJ called John Peel. We also had three weekly music papers, which, you know, had big circulation. So people got, you know, could get kind of, um, yeah, all out there on the radar and sort of also, as you could imagine, the UK is tiny, isn't it? But we have a lot of towns and cities that all have an alternative indie night or whatever night they have. So you could sort of get to tour. Did did the band, did they, um, did they have the John Peel sort of session i was kind of i was kind of trying to work out if you did a john peel session or not with the band we did actually it was it was uh the last the next not the most recent live skull record because you know they've kind of gotten back together but the one i forget which one maybe it is the most recent one where it's half new songs and half peel songs from our peel session from um yeah so we did live skull did do peel session can you remember much about that i just wonder if you can remember who it, it was a made of L, whether, you know, the producer was the, the famous Dale Griffith, who was in Mott the Hoople. Um, it was definitely at Made of L, but I, I'm not, re- I don't remember who, who produced it. Yes. So because the other thing that I sort of found from doing this, and I suppose it could be more from a UK thing, that there was the, that period of the kind of the, the 80s indie world, which was from... I put it down to 83 to 87, which basically are the years of the Smiths. And then when they broke up, you know, there was a sudden new kind of musical chapter that started again. And also there was Ecstasy came along, which seemed to make a massive difference to the musical landscape. Suddenly everyone wanted that dance scene, you know, like there was the Happy Mondays, the Soup Dragon, Dragons. There was also, um, yeah, the Charlatans, the Stone Roses. There was also all the kind of the kind of the Hacienda club nights and stuff like that. And then after that, there was the Seattle grunge scene. So I just wondered how that affected your kind of creative kind of moment during that kind of late eighties, early nineties period. Um. Yeah, I don't really think that that scene affected affected me. Um. I, w- I was, you know, I went from, from Live Skull to pretty soon after um, forming Come. So I was already by like 90, by 90, Come had formed. And like, I think um, it put out our first single on Sub Pop in 91 and our first record, 1111 in 92. So um, I, I can't, I have to say, I don't think I was not influenced by the whole 
rave culture at all. Um, yes, my God. I mean, so you, you've got this great moment of being able to sort of go from the 80s into the 90s and have another decade of quite sort of solid, another solid band. So um, I have to say, you know, you're one of the, I've interviewed a lot of people. You've done really amazingly well on this. <laughs> Most people have to drop out at some stage, but um, your experience has come. That was, that was kind of so successful. But also, you know, like, like just, you know, there, there was a pretty big bridge between, it seemed like the grunge scene sprang out of nothing, but it really didn't because I remember Mudhoney being around when Live Skull was around. I remember playing with Mudhoney and um or going to see mud honey being really into their into their record and so like bands like mud honey and dinosaur and all those bands had been had been there all all along and then it wasn't like all of a sudden they formed in the 90s it was just like all of a sudden when nirvana broke through with um their second album that all of a sudden this light was shown on all these bands but those had bands had been there all along and were peers of mine, you know, like yes. I used to knew Jay and I knew you know, Jay Mascus and, you know, and, um, and I was, didn't know the Mudhoney guys as well, but, you know, so we were all, but we were all knew of each other and we were all kind of doing the same thing, even when life's, even when life skull was kind of ending. And then when come started, it was kind of like, we, I think our record came out like, I can't remember when Nevermind came out, but it might've been the same year. Nevermind came out. Like, or I mean, it was after probably like a six months after or something like that. So yes, we, I mean, during the sort of the eighties, we had, you know, we had you know Huskadoo, the Butthole Surfers, you know, and obviously Sonic Youth had been about. So I don't think what you know, as a fan, you never sort of realized it was going to get much beyond that kind of. Quite... Honey were huge in the eighties. They I mean, were huge. Touch me, I'm sick. That was like eighty nine, eighty eight, eighty nine. Yes, I remember then... like listening to their second album in the live skull van, you know, and live skull broke up in like, yeah, 90, 89, 90. So they'd already been around for a couple of years and in, in the States were, were really popular. So, yes, I think I it think was just, I think it was just that when they were touring the UK, they came to the Norwich art center and, you know, and I know Nirvana came there supporting Tad, bizarrely, on a sub-pop tour. And, you know, it only holds 200, 300, 250, 300 people. So it was kind of at that level that when Nevermind came out, everything kind of changed for sort of the next couple of years. So it had such a big impact, really, that, you know, during the 80s, a lot of those bands, you know, it was good. But you sometimes didn't feel like you were going to be part of that, a really popular kind of musical moment really but obviously right. never mind changed everything didn't it really at that stage so then yeah. yes the 90s with come so that was that was again that was on was that on matador records you said yes that was on matador and yep. what was it like sort of having sort of come out of um live skull and then sort of forming a new band because this was like completely new for all the members wasn't it uh new in what way would you well mean? the band hadn't sort of been about before you all sort of joined i'm just sort of that wasn't really well put but you know like <laughs> with with live skull they'd been around for five years before oh, you right, became yeah, yeah, yeah. no it was a new band and i was excited about that and i was also excited to be playing guitar again i really missed playing guitar well when i was in life skull i always had sort of side projects that i'd play guitar so i'd been like me and chris brokaw had been um had already been sort of jamming and 
playing on guitar and I I really wanted to do a sort of different kind of music than than Live Skull was doing. And I really wanted to um to write write music too, not just the lyrics and and vocal lines. So so um and yeah, I had kind of an idea of what kind of stuff I wanted to to do. Me and me and Chris both did. And um and then and we would talk and you know hang out when I was still in New York with Live Skull. And then when I ended up moving back to Boston, um, where he already was, he was already playing with Arthur and Sean in a different group. And um, and that group kind of like splintered apart. And then, but they but Chris and Sean and Arthur were still playing together and they invited me to come down to a rehearsal and um and that's kind of how comms started. Yes. And then your first album, Eleven Eleven, there was you already got an amazing sound on that album quite quickly. I mean, and your guitar playing and the vocals, I mean, you know, it becomes something of a, not an instant classic, but there is a great amount of sort of sonic, a great sonic vibe to it. Did you, yes, did that kind of relationship between the two of you, was that kind of, you know, did you sort of feel it straight away that there was something quite special about the band? Um. Yeah, I mean... I think I did. I mean, I I knew, like me and Chris had met before I joined Live Skull. Actually, we had met in Boston right before I moved to New York to to sort of join Live Skull full time, and um and we had played together. And I immediately was like, um, you know, knew that that this was someone I wanted to work with at some point. We we stayed in touch that whole time through the eighties, and um, so I already knew that I you know that that I really loved Chris's guitar playing and loved playing with him. And I knew Arthur because he was in this band. He was a played drums in this band called the barbecue killers that um, live skull had toured with. And I was totally in awe of his drumming. So I was very excited to play with Arthur and Sean. I had met before because he was also lived in, lived in Athens, Georgia, which is where Arthur lived. And, um, and where Barbecue Killers was based, but I hadn't played with him before. So I I'd known three out of the four I, I already knew and was a big admirer of in terms, in musically speaking. Yes. And then sort of, as as you sort of, again, sort of got to that, was it the, around the fourth, the fourth album, Gently Down the Stream? Did that also, did you sort of feel that the, the band were sort of coming to a, an end at that stage? Um, I don't, think no again it wasn't like i say when when we made the record gently down the stream that we that was definitely not on our on our mind and um you know we had so we made uh we made the first two records with um the a rhythm the rhythm section of arthur johnson and sean o'brien and they both actually left together in 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 uh as a as a team after the second record. So then we had like different rhythm sections on the third and fourth record. And I think by the time we made gently down the stream, we were like, okay, we're ready to have a more permanent rhythm section now. And so we were playing with Daniel Coughlin, who was the drummer on gently down the stream. He was based in Boston. And up until then we'd been playing with different people who didn't necessarily live in Boston. Um, but we decided, you know, we want to sort of get a regular permanent rhythm section and we never quite found a permanent bass player. So we um, were playing with a couple of different bass players and Daniel. And um, I think, I think it was 
So we put up, released the record and did a bunch of touring on Gently Down the Stream. And I think when it came time to write another record, that's when we kind of started to, that's when, that's when we both, both me and Chris were kind of like, mm, I don't know, this is, this isn't really happening. Um, Chris was doing some solo stuff already and was getting more into instrumental music, which obviously as a singer was not, <laughs> wasn't leave, you know, I couldn't be a part of that, you know, and, um, and then he also was playing a lot with um, both me and Chris, the, uh, and all of Come actually uh, supported Steve Wynn in this record he had put out called Melting in the Dark and toured with him. And then Chris kind of continued to play with him. I, I played and toured with him on that record, but then Chris kind of, at some point, a couple, a year or so later, Steve was looking for a touring guitarist and and Come was, wasn't really doing anything we were kind of in a writing phase at that time. And, and Chris ended up going on tour with Steve and it's kind of like, like a couple months tour turned into like a seven month tour turned into like a year and a half tour. And it, I have to say, come just kind of fizzled. It wasn't really like a big, you know? Yes. But again, but again, you did two John Peel sessions during that period, didn't you? Sort of in 92 and the following year, 93 as well. Yeah, we did. Yep. What was it like? I mean, you know, what? How did you find the the kind of, you know, the European audiences compared to America? Um, the, you know, I think it's. I think they're different. I think you know that the European audiences are 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 maybe in a way got got us a little bit more than the American audiences. Um, uh, geez, I don't know. It's just such a, such a difficult question. Um, I mean, I just, I think United States and Europe are so different from each other that it's really hard to make that comparison. I mean, they're so different geographically. They're so different culturally. Um, so, um, yes. No, yeah. it's yeah. Well, I, I sort of as a sort of a person from the UK, we used to get very excited about anybody from America. You know, if you could find right. an obscure artist, you felt, especially on the John Peel show, you felt so chuffed with yourself because there's something, there's something great to think that band was yours. And then obviously, when you went to see them live, you realized a few hundred other people also had the same idea. But there was a real commitment, and I think uh, yeah. kind of it was the the idea of the exotic or the kind of some you know this projection onto a lot of the American bands that we we love because they were elsewhere but perhaps if they came from your own town you'd have thought yeah I can't be bothered with them you know every you know I don't know it's a funny attitude isn't it really so um that's why I think a lot of American bands often do quite well in the UK because we're just terribly excited to see them you know so yeah well I mean I think it goes the other way too I mean I think a lot of American I, I was always really influenced by a lot of like British bands and, um, and Australian bands and, you know, and, um, you know, because it's kind of like, yeah, the, it's not just that the, the geography is exotic, but also, you know, the music is different and it's kind of coming from a different place. So you're hearing stuff that, that you haven't maybe heard before, um, you know, 
Yes, but then so that was just two decades of solid, solid music. You start a, a solo, a solo career for the next, yeah. for the rest of your life. So, did you just have a moment where you sat down and thought, right, that's it. My next, my next plan, my next path in life is going to be myself in the driving seat. Yes, I did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think, I think at that point, like I'd been in. Come and I'd been in Live Skull, I'd been in Uzi, I'd been in Dangerous Birds and White Women. And I think I, I think like, especially with like Come, like I just felt like I didn't want to be dependent on other musicians, on, on other band members anymore. Like I wanted to be able to play, like I think when Come, when our first rhythm section left, like when Arthur and Sean left and we started playing with different people, people were like, how can you still be Come, you know, with, with, without Arthur and Sean and I just I just never wanted even though me and Chris wrote all the material you know pretty much um I just never wanted to be in that position again where I felt like I couldn't play songs that I'd written because they belonged to another band I wanted everything I wrote from then on to belong to me and that I could play it with anyone that I wanted to play and no one could ever say you know Yes, well, I, I can see. I mean, because your solo career, I mean, has been, you know, pretty prolific, actually, hasn't it? You probably, yeah, have you done sort of eight albums since 2001 and various probably EPs and singles and live recordings? Yeah, and I actually, I have another band now that has... Excellent. I do have another, I have a band called E, and we've actually put out four albums and a single and cassette and um, we put out our first two albums were on Thrill Jockey and our last two records were on a Czech label called Silver Rocket. And we've toured Europe um, four times, too, and um, and done some touring in the States. So um, I do I've kind of gotten back into the band thing while continuing the solo thing, because um, because I, I do really like playing in a band. And I like I like writing collaboratively. I get a little tired of like writing on my own all the time. I find it. I like having both of them. So I, I really enjoy like coming up with songs in a room with other people at the same time. You know what I mean? We're all like kind of writing it ourselves. So E is actually in the process of writing our fifth record now. Um, we're a trio and it's with uh, Jason Sanford, who um, had a, a band that was very popular in the States and they did tour Europe quite a bit, but they seem to be a little more esoteric um they toured with the x a lot and it was a band called neptune um right. they all built their own instruments and stuff and then um the drummer is gavin mccarthy from karate right yeah dear old and gavin. both gavin and jason were living in boston at the time um since we a few years now jason actually lives in colorado now um he him and his family moved there and Gavin Asif, the last record is not going to be part of the new record. He wasn't part of the last tour, but so now we have a new drummer, Ernie Kim. Excellent. You know, you're very good at your sort of um, person, person, person skills, I guess, and personnel changes here. You're able to flow with it. Did you, I was just kind of curious with that kind of crazy process. I don't know if you saw that, um, well, two films. There was the Beatles film that came out a couple of years oh, yeah. ago, the eight-hour film. Did you yeah. sort of watch in that and seeing how they came together during that 
that month or two of putting, you know, recording a new album from scratch. Did you find that quite inspirational yourself oh, as an God, artist? I, I love that so much. And I have to say, I am not a big Beatles fan. Like I was not never, I don't think I own a single Beatles record. I I might own a cassette of the White Album. Um, but uh or revolver did they do a record like i'm just really not a beatles fan yeah you know? <laughs> obviously I, obviously i know their music yes you know, like how can you not but um you know and i respect them obviously quite a bit but um so even as not a beatles fan i love that so much i found it so inspiring and so interesting to me i'm very very interested in in seeing bands in the studio i've always loved that um Sympathy for the Devil, that Rolling Stones movie, I, I found that fascinating too. Watching how the song started out with like as a as like a country song, and then yes. kind of turned in. So um, yeah, I I, I love that. I, yes, I love, I love seeing. Um, I enjoyed that so much. I watched it with a bunch of friends. We uh, in my neighborhood, and um, we watched it like every Tuesday night. We'd get together and watch it. A different episode and, and uh, <laughs> yeah well okay. i you know i i they, was like this is so great yeah it was good and and there was also another series that they used to make quite a bit called the classic album series and that was anything from black sabbath to motorhead to phil collins to simply red I've seen some of those is that like on netflix or it used to be on one of uh, streaming or something it was just like in the studio and it would it would be like maybe one or two guys from the band and whoever the producer was. And- yes, that's the one. Absolutely. They they would have the they'd have the tape and they'd have, you know, the singer or the guitarist. And yeah, they would pull down, you'd hear the bass line or you hear the kind of guitar or you hear the vocal. And you know, it was just like I was amazed. I, you know, even bands I didn't like, I still love those. And I just thought of yourself as an artist keeping that kind of enthusiasm, especially sort of making music from scratch every time you know how you how you keep that kind of energy and and sort of looking for the next thing a bit like I don't know if you saw David Bowie the the David Bowie film last year Moon Age Daydream which was much more of a I don't know abstract kind of concept really from the film director but again it was kind of interesting just yeah kind of a very expression impressionistic kind of idea of Mr Bowie I suppose and keeping keeping the enthusiasm while while sort of needing to produce something at the end of it must be you know quite a challenge at times and I just wondered how you yourself keep that going um you know I I try to like I I found kind of like through trial and error that like it's best for me to have a few different projects going that that they all kind of feed each other and um you know, it's, yeah, I just, I just, um, I kind of have a, try to keep a variety of different things going to keep, keep my interest going. I mean, there, there's definitely been times with the, when the, you know, that I'll get a little bit, I try not to get too tired. of. I mean, the solo stuff is hard. Like sometimes, you know, cause I'm, I'm, I'm so I learned that I that I really need to have some different types of stuff, some stuff where I'm kind of in charge, but then also collaborative start stuff. And I think, you know, really where I get that charge from is is um is playing with other musicians. So I'm really that's that's where it comes from. It comes from from uh 
from playing, making music with people, with people, you know, like, I think, um, at least for me, just kind of like sitting in my room and doing everything, you know, alone in my bedroom, it, it can, it can kind of get a bit claustrophobic for me. So I think, um, to do as many different types of stuff as possible is, is kind of like the way to keep it fresh, you know? Yeah. Cause when you did your last album, which I believe was your eighth one, Perfect Vision, this was was this mostly had was this mostly written and recorded during the dreaded lockdown period, or had you written yes, something? It definitely was. Um, when did we we recorded it? I remember we finished mixing it in um, in the beginning of 2021. So we recorded it in December of 2020. Yeah, during the yes. lockdown. Yeah. <laughs> And how did that? And how did that process work? Because again, you had you had Gavin on drums, didn't you? Then yep. there was yourself, guitar, vocals, Winston uh -huh. on bass, and David on viola, which was exciting. Had you, yep. you know, so when you brought that band together, that did had you sort of been talking on Zoom or on Teams to sort of try and work out how you're going to make that process work? Yeah, we had been. Um, well, so at the time, like. Dave and Gavin and Winston, the bass player, all were living in Boston. Um, so, uh, and I also had a bunch of, but because it was like the pandemic and I had started collaborating with people remotely, which it was, I, I had never done that before. And I finally got my act together and learned how to use my computer to record and trade tracks with someone. I mean, the, the lockdown was a big impetus for that. That's something that I, always meant to do but never got around to doing so um you know I, there was a lot of a lot of other musicians you know everyone was basically at home so i um allison chesley who um performs under the and records under the name helen money contributed quite a bit like with cello and, and piano and then i had a, a pedal steel guitar player karen sarkisian who um that was all done remotely um and dave did did his viola parts remotely and then me and Gavin and Winston all went into the studio together in person. So we kind of like, I, I did all the, a lot of the demoing at home and set the tracks. And then I went, me and Gavin and the bass, bass drums guitar, we rehearsed the songs maybe for a week mm. in person and then went in the studio, put down all the basic tracks and then everything else was um, done remotely. Yes, amazing. I mean, everyone learned how to use their, their homemade recording studio or, you know, the software on their computer at this stage, hadn't they? There was a lot Garage of kind of... Me, I finally figured out how to use GarageBand. <laughs> <laughs> everyone, everyone suddenly made that kind of a big a big thing to sort of master on, on sort of yeah. lockdown period. So then sort of going forward, you know, from with E and this, your solo project. So the next, the next album coming out will be with E, will it? Um, I'm not sure yet. Um, we are mixing a single right now that's going to be released. Um, I'm not exactly sure when, but probably fairly soon we're doing it on a small boston label and that's going to be from some live record a live really great live show that was recorded in geneva when we were touring last summer over in europe so that's going to be the next for e and we're working on writing a new record and i'm working on writing a new new solo record too and um yeah so i've got i've got a, a bunch of stuff in the air and i don't know 
which is gonna at this point, which is gonna be released first. Like nothing's nothing's quite at that stage yet where it's in the manufacturing. Yes, quite I got you. Being nothing's completed yet. None of the recordings are completed yet. But and have so, you any live live shows planned? Actually, you've got one tonight, haven't you? I got one tonight. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm playing tonight um, solo. I'm playing with, uh, I, I started taking saxophone lessons and um, the guy I'm taking sax lessons from, he was like, well, he, his band, he has an amazing band. He's an amazing alto sax player. And there is a, the band's called Fully Celebrated Orchestra. And I've been a fan of theirs for, for ages. And so we all have been, everyone in Com, Com used to play with them and someone I've known for a long time. But anyway, I, Recently, I played clarinet for a long time. I always wanted to learn saxophone. And recently, uh, I borrowed a saxophone from a friend. I'm taking lessons now. And so he's like, oh, well, instead of his band has a residency. So this is my, this is me paying for my sax lesson by, by playing the, playing, performing at the residency. That's, that's, that's what he wanted in lieu for payment. But, um, but I love seeing those guys anyway. So, so I'm doing that and comes actually, getting very busy, um, which is kind of surprising. I wasn't expecting to be so busy with come, but like we keep getting offered for shows and they're really good shows. So we're doing it. We're going back to Europe. We're playing Primavera in the spring and we're doing a, a bunch of shows on the East Coast in the spring. We have a couple more reissues coming out this year um, on Fire Records. So that's that's getting busy. So I'm kind of, yeah, I'm just kind of like, I've got a a bunch of stuff going on and I'm just kind of going with whatever, whatever, letting, letting things kind of like shake out the way they seem to want to go. So right now it seems like come will probably be the busier of the projects on, um, in terms of touring. That's My goodness, you, you've got a really, you've got a fantastic couple of weeks, haven't you? At the end of May, early June with come actually. Yeah. I'm, I'm so excited. Yes. Very excited. Yeah. I know. Cause one of those dates is the Colchester art center, which is, down in Essex, just north of London. I think that's um, that seems to be the go-to place for a lot of artists because I know Jarbo from um, the Swans was down there just before Christmas, I believe, doing a double bill with a, I think a lute play, lute player. So um, obviously, you know, they've got a good booking agent down yeah. in Colchester, and then several dates in Newcastle, Glasgow, and obviously London, Cafe Cafe Otto. So. Um, I'm yep. sure Thurston Moore will be there because he seems to live there. <laughs> We're um, also playing Todd's Morden and a few other places as well. I think it's like five shows right now in 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 the UK, in England, England and Scotland, and um, then Italy, Spain. A couple in Italy. We're doing, I think, like seven shows in Spain now. We've yes. been at some. Um, Couple shows, a few shows in France, um, and the Netherlands. Netherlands, um, yes, yeah, is... Luxembourg, Switzerland, and then we're going to do a show in Norway at the end of the tour too. Fantastic! Do you find that having those kind of experiences of sort of getting out and about in a completely different world does that also sort of give you sort of creative ideas as well, or you know, stimulation and in some way yeah definitely I mean I you know I really enjoy performing so so for me to me it's like a, the other half of the coin so I'm like 
I like I like writing and I like recording, but I also really love performing and I really love touring and traveling. So I don't I wouldn't I don't know if my songs are necessarily inspired by my travels. I think my songs tend to come from a more internal place than an external place. But personally, it's something that's that's really, really important to me. I mean, music is a performing art and I really enjoy the performing part of it a lot. So mm. I get a lot connecting with audiences and just that feeling that you get when you're communicating you know in that way with you know in a performance so that brings me a lot of pleasure yes and just kind of lastly I mean if you could have um whispered something to your 16 year old self starting out some words of wisdom or some sort of I don't know, nudge in a different direction or not different direction, but, you know, just if you could have whispered something to your 16 year old self is even if that person ignored you, is there anything in particular you might've just gone, Oh yes, that would have been a good idea. I mean, it could be any, anything, you know, from, it doesn't matter, but I was just always curious because sometimes you go, Oh yes, actually there is one thing I'd have said to that person. Um, probably I would say have confidence in yourself, you know, um, uh yeah because i i feel like you know that's something that 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 you need to have that i that i didn't really have and you know kind of like you know i think like struggled with struggled with a lot and um and you know probably might have like held me back and um and stuff so yeah that's what i that's what i'd say yes I know when we're young, it's it's we probably just all look rather offish and arrogant, but we're just in <laughs> just riddled with insecurity and sort of doubt. Yes. <laughs> it's easy to be done. Well, anyway, look, thank you ever so much. I've really... There you go. Seamless edit there. Anyway, a massive thank you to Talia Zedek to um, give me the time for that interview. Much appreciated. If you, um, yes, want to find out any more information about her career, Google, that's that's always my my best approach. Or, um, yeah, she's probably got various social media platform sites that she uses as well. So anyway, that's the best I can do, I'm afraid. Anyway, look, this has been the C86 Show, David E. So if you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Just do C86 Show. All these interviews have been archived. You can find those on Spotify, iTunes, Podbeam. It's true. Anyway, have a great week. Stay safe.